Hello, welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. If you'd like to buy or sell apartments, uh, give us a call or visit us at bullrealty.com. Well, speaking of apartments, that's what our show is about today. We're going to talk about multifamily, and while multifamily has been on a wild ride, it's been it's been incredible, and it seems like it's continuing forever, but of course, nothing lasts forever, right? And we're starting to have issues, affordability issues. We're seeing rent control. We're seeing uh, inc increasing uh, at cost to, to, of construction. We've seen a lot of new supply. So let's uh, check out the multifamily market. Please welcome my first guest. It's Carl Whitaker. He's manager of data analytics with RealPage, and he's joining us uh, via video on uh, Zoom. Uh, Carl, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Appreciate you having us. So so what is that uh, picture in the background behind you there? So that's our RealPage office. We're located here in Richardson, just a little bit north of Dallas. And uh, you may hear it jokingly referred to as the mothership. We've got a, a few thousand employees here that work at the office, and it's, uh, it's, it's a good place to be. Oh, awesome, awesome. The mothership, it does look kind of like a ship back there, right? Uh, <laughs> So, so Carl, how long is, our, well, first of all, 19, when you ended 19 and you kind of looked at it, uh, what, did, what did you see for rental rate growth and occupancy growth overall? Yeah, so in 2019, as you mentioned earlier, it's been a nice ride for apartments. And 2019, we saw another strong year. Um, rent growth came in at about 2.8% for the year-end figure. Uh, occupancy actually reached about 96.5% during the peak leasing season, but as you expect in the fourth quarter, it tends to pull back, but still looking at 95% plus occupancy, um, really strong year. Uh, a couple of markets started to pull back a little bit on the class A side of things, but you know, even, even across the product spectrum, we saw um, you know, most markets sitting between 25 to 3% for, for rent growth for all product classes. Okay, so what do you expect moving forward? Is, can we expect another good year in 2020? I think so. I think we might start to see some dynamics uh, start to shift and evolve just a little bit. Um, one of the big trends we've really keyed in on for 2020 is that overall U.S. supply figure is really taking a big jump this year. Uh, not 2019, we had about 250,000 new units deliver. 2020, we're looking at about 375,000 new units delivering. So that 50% that increase is certainly going to have an effect on the market to some degree. But when you look at some of the tailwinds, the industry is still riding. Um, and the fact that the economy is still performing pretty strongly, I certainly don't see that tanking fundamentals by any means. You may start to see that Class A performance pull back just a little bit more. You may start to see some increased um, competition among lease-up properties in particular, perhaps some more concessions being offered. But again, I think our expectation is that through 2020, we should see rent growth continue around 25 to 3%, and occupancy should remain above 95%, which 10 years ago, if somebody would have told you that occupancy is still at 95% plus, even after delivering 2.5 million new units to the to the inventory over the past decade, I think most people would have taken that and run with it. So yeah. all considered, I think we like the we like the outlook for 2020 for sure. Yeah, they'd have taken it and ran with it, or just not believed us, right? It's like, yeah. no, there's no way. And you know, you mentioned all this new supply. That's a that's a huge uh, jump in new supply. And um, so let's let's jump back to 2019 for a moment. When you looked at uh, market performance of these property types, if you look at Class A kind of separately from from B and C, uh, what's what's the variation there? So it wasn't too much of a variation. It was really more towards the latter half of the year. Um, we saw. Um, really the three product classes run in a pretty close conjunction with one another. Um, we did see you know, a 20 to 30 basis point slowdown in class A rent growth towards year's end. And I think that's really just indicative of that 2020 supply number that we're expecting where operators are, you know, sure they've seen the building going up, but now they're starting to see that four lease sign hanging in the window. So maybe adjusting their strategies a little bit to, to you know, 
perhaps forego a little bit of rent growth at the sake of maintaining some stronger occupancy. But, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, all product classes still sit above 95% occupancy. So things look good. Um, you know, a few markets that maybe have had a little bit more of a of a, of a supply constraint, perhaps have seen Class A performance dip a little bit more, but even a handful of markets such as Dallas and Seattle that have had incredible inventory growth, they've got the demand and the job growth to, to keep fueling overall strong A fundamentals because just the, the economies are so strong there. So a lot of that Class A performance starts to, starts to differ when you shake it out on a market-by-market market perspective. Yeah, that, that's always true. You got to look at the individual markets and uh, so what, what markets are, uh, you see, do we see some opportunities out there in some of these markets, Carl? Yeah, of course. And, uh, and like I said earlier, I think the two markets that really surprised us through 2019 were, were Dallas and Seattle, just simply because they've added so much inventory. But again, the demand's been strong enough there that overall performance has been strong. Um, we did see Southern California start to slow down a little bit in 2019. That was anticipated um, as those, the, the that, that region's supply pipeline has certainly picked up a lot and Los Angeles in particular. Uh, the Bay Area started to slow down a little bit as well, um, but also due to some, some supply concerns. Um, but one region of the, the country that we really keyed in on is really lacking and has been echoed in some other um, providers information. You know, the Urban Land Institute put out their emerging trends and real estate report late last year, and they really keyed in on as well on the, the southeast pocket of the country as being a, a good real estate opportunity, even outside of multifamily. But we've certainly seen that in our numbers where Nashville, Charlotte, Atlanta, those markets have been you know in, incredibly strong over the past few years. And I think they'll continue to do so through 2020 and into 2021. Okay, excellent. And what about some of the smaller secondary markets? Do you see any uh, markets there that uh, could have some opportunities? Yeah, sticking even in that southeast pocket, one that um, has has come up a few times has been Greenville Spartanburg there in South Carolina. Um, small market, but the type of job growth is pretty impressive there. You got a lot of higher paying manufacturing um, and also just the quality of life there is pretty good because it is affordable, but also you've got a nice little downtown, um, a downtown cluster there that's kind of a neat little urban core for a small market. Um, you know, looking at some other markets that are smaller across the country, I think we really like to key in on some of those areas that have differentiated themselves with the types of job growth that they're getting, a Boise, Idaho, a Greenville, Spartanburg, some higher tech job growth relative to some other areas that might not have that same type of employment growth, or perhaps you have a few markets that just have a an incredibly unique anchor that drives very strong demand, such as a Fayetteville, Arkansas, Tucson, Arizona, two big university towns or college towns that have um, additional employment nodes even outside of the colleges. Yeah, and then you mentioned the college towns. Uh, what do you see for the student housing uh, performance in, in those markets? Is it kind of riding the same wave as uh, multifamily? Yeah, student housing is a really interesting, it's, it, it's, a, it's an animal in and of itself from the perspective that when you look at the U.S. numbers year to year, they don't really change all that much, but the campus by campus composition changes drastically from year to year. So I think our expectations for 2020, we have about 50,000 units slated, or I say 50,000 units, 50,000 beds rather, slated to deliver in 2020. That's about what we've seen for off-campus deliveries over the past five to six years. So I don't see that necessarily slowing fundamentals. Uh, there are some questions looking at enrollment growth and some demographic tailwinds that are starting to burn off. The Gen Z cohort is just a smaller population group than the millennial cohort, but all said, you have a larger percentage of uh, high school graduates enrolling in college now. So I don't think we'll necessarily see the, the student market start to start to dip all that significantly, but there are some underside risks that are being exposed now that may not have been exposed in some previous years. Okay, and, and we sell uh, everything from dis hyper distressed to hyper core in the Southeast, and we're seeing multifamily is a division that we have here at Bull. And we're seeing a lot of demand from um, these communities like New York and some of these other places where they're starting to see rent control. What do you expect the impact of rent control and kind of other 
uh, affordable housing initiatives to, to what kind of impact do you expect on multifamily? Yeah, the impacts, it's, it's an interesting question just because we don't, we don't know fully yet what the impact will be. But I think our expectation is that even though the intentions of rent control and some of these affordability initiatives might be well intended, when you break down the economics 101 of it, it doesn't really attack the core issue, which is just more of a supply under, you've got undersupplied markets that have strong demands. Rent control isn't going to necessarily bring additional investment interest into these markets. It's going to scare some developers away. So even though some of the intentions might be um, good-hearted, I don't ne necessarily see that fixing the core issue. Um, you know, it, in the Bay Area is a good example. It's it's hard to build there from a from for a number of reasons. It's a high barrier to entry market. This rent control just seems to add an artificial barrier to entry now. And again, I don't see how that encourages additional development, which is really the crux of the issue. Yeah, really, it might curtail new development and also make uh, curtail investment in, in existing communities to uh, to improve them, right? Absolutely, and we're actually even starting to see some of the capital markets uh, reflect that, where investment interest in Chicago and New York starting to pull back just a little bit. Some of that investment, some of that capital starting to seek some of those southeast markets that I mentioned earlier, and some of that's also a demographic or a, an economics trend, rather, where you know the the evolution of the Sun Belt, and particularly the southeast in Texas, as those economies have strengthened. Um, you know, it's going to bring some additional investment interest, but you're absolutely right that these these rent control laws and these affordability laws might aren't certainly aren't going to attract additional investment to the areas. And we'll see what the the, the mid to long term impacts of that are. But I don't necessarily see it helping the core issue at hand, which, again, is more of a supply issue than it is a um, and an operators acting out of turn. Yeah. Issue. Yeah. And there are a lot of ways to or multiple ways, I guess, not enough, but there's multiple ways to kind of help the supply issue. We'll, we'll cover that on another day on, on affordability issues. But you mentioned capital markets. So when you look at, and, and, and if you just tuned in, we're talking with Carl Whitaker and he's with RealPage. We're talking about the multifamily market and you mentioned capital markets. So what do you see for cap rate trends in, in apartments around the country? And is there any difference between kind of class A and the rest as far as the uh, cap rate trends go? Yeah, and that's similar to some of the student housing discussion we mentioned earlier, where the U.S. trend hasn't really moved all that much from year to year over the past four to five years. Looking at cap rates, you know, we're we're seeing we have we have a partnership with Real Capital Analytics, who provides all the capital markets information that we look at, and um, we've seen cap rates hover really about five and a half percent at the U.S. level. But when you start to peel the layers of the onion and look at some individual markets, particularly within those individual markets, is where you really start to see some some various or you know some some uh, performance divergence. And I'm going to pick on Southern California here, where looking at cap rates in the urban core and some of those real high. Um, high gravity suburbs such as Santa Monica, such as uh, Woodland Hills, where cap rates are, it's not uncommon to see sub 3% cap rates being underwrote there, which is just amazing looking at where we were 10 years ago. But, um, you know, still investment interest in multifamily is at all time highs. We've seen, you know, billions and billions of dollars of capital flowing into multifamily. And with good reason, there's very strong demand, very um, you know, the, the performance of multifamily is certainly supportive of a lot of the investment interest that the, the industry has been receiving in recent years. Right. And when you say 5.5 uh, kind of is an average around the U.S., is that kind of all classes? How, how might A uh, differ from from the rest, if you will, as far as the trend? Sure. And, and, and that, that, that is a national number. So that's looking at all classes. Uh, generally speaking, we've seen class A a little bit tighter. You know, you're, you're going to have to pony up a bit more cash for some of these class A assets. Again, some of the, the performance fundamentals that we mentioned earlier are still supportive of that overall capital uh, market interest. But some of those uh, class A cap rates may be a bit more tight maybe a bit more people competing for those deals. So you've got average price per unit is a bit more, um, a bit, a, a, perhaps a bit more frothy, but certainly not at a point where it's overcooked or at any, at any level to where it should be concerning. All right, well, I've got to 
um, leave this interview with the big question, the elephant in the room. I guess everybody's wondering is, how long does this last, Carl? I mean, it's been great. How long does it go? Does it go forever? <laughs> it can't <laughs> it'd go It'd be forever, nice if it right? did. Yeah, it'd be nice if it did. Yeah. And we were we were joking earlier. I think it'll it, the, the good times will last anywhere from another year to another 10 years, and it'll be somewhere <laughs> in between. But um, I think realistically, you yeah. start to look at some of the some of the, the economic trends in the country right now. Job growth is still strong, don't get me wrong, but we have seen that start to ease a little bit. Um, unemployment's been under 4% for quite some time now. And since labor force participation is increasing, but it can't increase infinitely, you know, soon the question does become just how much longer can the economy grow and how much longer will that continue to support demand for multifamily? Again, long term, I think we're in great shape, but over the next, let's call it year to, to perhaps two and a half years, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the, the economic headwinds start to pull back overall demand figures. But even at the, the trough of the forecast, RealPage is expecting occupancy to to, you know, I, and I hesitate to say bottom out because it almost sounds a bit disingenuous to call it that. But our expectation is that occupancy bottoms out at about 94, 94 and a half percent in late 2021. Uh, rent growth, you know, stalls at about one and a half to two percent, but quickly recovers. So I think the, the answer to the question is that, no, unfortunately, the good times won't last forever. But I do think the bad times, if you even want to call it that, will be pretty short lived. And, you know, a few years later, we'll look back at that as just a blip on the radar more than anything. Excellent. Well, Carl, great information as usual. Thank you for joining us, sir. Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. If you'd like more information from Carl and the good folks at RealPage, their website is realpage.com. Stay with us. We're going to have some more interesting looks and views on the multifamily market. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Have you seen the DNA of CRE? Well, it's a survey you can take about how commercial agents work day to day, their technology, their challenges, the systems, and a lot more about how commercial agents and their marketing people work. And you get access to the results. So take the survey, check out the results. You can find it at the show website, which is CREshow.com, and then look for the DNA of CRE. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. The segment's brought to you by the DNA of CRE. Now, if you're a commercial real estate agent or, or in marketing of commercial real estate industry, uh, just Google it. You got to check it out. DNA of CRE. Well, they were talking about multifamily and what an exciting sector. Everyone's interested in it. What's going to happen? We've had incredible demand. Uh, what should we expect moving forward? Well, as you know, we like to talk to strict analysts that really just look at look at the market all the time but we also like to talk to industry participants who who own and manage and develop properties well we have a good combination of both here please welcome my guest brad dillman he's chief economist with Cortland. he's here in studio one brad thanks for being with us hey, thanks for having me so uh you know you guys own a lot of apartments uh, and, and so tell us just briefly i mean how many communities and and, and units and and where are they all let's give the idea for the audience, uh, the breadth of what you guys are looking at. Yeah, we, we're 60,000 units now uh, in the United States. They're generally in the south, uh, Texas, a little bit in the west. Uh, we do have a small presence in Columbus, Ohio as well. Uh, we have a nascent business in the UK uh, where the sector is really growing. So it's, it's really being built over there because this type of housing just doesn't exist yet really in, the, in that country. Uh, you know, we've seen some, some pretty big growth. So three yeah. years ago we were thirty thousand units, and now yeah. we're now we're double that. Yeah, I, you know, I remember yeah. that. And uh, so you you guys have mainly bought existing product, right? Yes. So the the company's bread and butter really was value add earlier in the cycle, mm -hmm. and in the last few years we've shifted more to a, a core plus strategy. Mm -hmm. But we do have a development uh, a platform as well, which is yeah. is starting to grow a bit more. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, tell us what you see. So you're an economist. You're looking at the apartment world all the time. So uh, you know, and a lot of people are kind of surprised that. The man for apartments has just continued to be strong, strong, strong. It's like, yeah. are you kidding me, right? Uh, what What do you see? Are you guys still seeing that type of demand? The, the absorptions are definitely there. Yeah. I think that the, the area that's getting questionable is always just how strong that incremental rent growth is going to be in the future. 
when we rewind the clock and look at what's happened in housing over the last 10 years, I think that's where there's a, a bit more of a story than we often talk about. And that's in short that you know during the housing bubble, we had an oversupply of housing, by my estimate, about two and a half million units. The recession was us burning that off for a bit. But then we had a series of policies that went into effect to stimulate the economy. One consequence of that was rising home prices, even though we had oversupply, even though we still had full-time employment levels that were back to the level seen in the, last, in the early 2000s. So not particularly a good labor market, but home prices rising quite quickly, really due to these credit interventions. And the consequences of that has been that it's very difficult to deliver single-family supply in later time periods. That's led to a total undersupply. And now we've got multifamily basically filling up that gap, that need for housing. And we can also see it in the rates of adults living at home, mm -hmm. which has continued to increase. It's kind of leveled off a little bit in the last year. But one statistic that I reference a lot is that you now have about one in five males, 25 to 34, living at home with their parents. Mm -hmm. So that's some significant pent-up demand. So when I put numbers to that and say, just how, how big is that compared to pre-recession, it's about 2.4 million people, mm -hmm. uh, men and women, that if we had the appropriate housing, would move out and form new households. Because yeah. alongside that estimate, you know, we see that we're about 1.3 million units undersupplied nationally, which is similar to an estimate produced by Freddie Mac, which is 2.5 million. So we'd sit there and say, yeah, is it going to keep going? It should seem like it would. We have this undersupply. We've got pent-up demand of folks living at home. I think the real question comes in the pricing. Everybody's looking at those cap rates. They're looking at compression mm -hmm. between MSAs, between geographic regions, and we have mm -hmm. to wonder, you know, at what, what point does that become an issue? Yeah, yeah, and you talk about pricing, and, when, and the first thing that comes to my mind when you when you talk about apartment pricing is really the affordability factor, right, mm -hmm. for the for these tenants. Because you look at some of these, especially these um, infill apartment communities, and and the rents per square foot are just really skyrocketing. You know, how many of these tenants can afford them, and 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 how do you look at that when you're looking at a project, and and does it concern you? So we always make sure in our communities that our residents are not paying more than thirty percent of their pre-tax income to to rent. So we're that's that's okay. uh, that's our rule is in order to qualify that, that you're there. And, and interestingly, I did a study on this, and in Cortland's uh, part of the rent distribution. You know, we're not this luxury, high-rise type of product. Mm -hmm. We're more of an aspirational suburban orientation, and we have a, we're, we're operating at a fatter part of the rent distribution. And when we look at that, you can see that about 80% of our communities uh, have a prevailing rent that allows somebody earning at 90% of the area median income is defined by HUD to rent in that community. So we're, we're, we're definitely market affordable yeah. uh, in that sense. Yeah, so you do look at that pretty closely then. Yes, oh yes. Yeah. And I think, I think that's one of, the, one of the larger narratives, right? Yeah. It's all the new supply, yeah. is it's very urban core, mm -hmm. it's similar high-rise product, and it's really targeting these rent levels that are, are a small proportion of the renter household distribution, yeah. uh, not this more suburban, more uh, attainable style product, where incidentally rent growth is higher, right? Yeah. So if, if I look across markets, and I, and I classify submarkets according to urban core, suburban, exurban, and this kind of thing, you can see that rent growth is definitely lower in these urban core submarkets. The pipeline is higher. You look out into the suburbs, pipeline's a lot lower, and the rent growth is higher. Yeah. So what would you expect moving forward then? I mean, we have an election here we're, uh, that we're, we're experiencing, and there's going to be a lot of turmoil, a lot of, lot of press, you know, a lot of uh, division out there. Uh, and, and who knows who's, who's going to win the election, really? Uh, how, how might that impact the economy in, in apartments? Yeah, I mean, so politics is always an important thing when we look at the economy. Mm -hmm. You tend to get these two-year cycles related to the midterms, and then, of course, the four-year cycle related to the, the presidential cycle. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the, since November 2018, we've sort of been in this controlled burn, this slowdown mm -hmm. uh, after inflation expectations fell, after the, the Democrats took the House, and it reduced the probability that we'd see any kind of expansionary legislation. Since then, the Fed's reversed course. We'll see what happens with politics, but I think we could definitely see the possibility, depending on, on how all that pans out, that we might see some kind of federal-level activity in housing. There, has, there have been bills put into Congress, uh, largely from the Democrats, that... Uh, our supply side and orientation that are aiming to say, hey, we need to build a lot of housing units. And according to my estimate, they're all coming in a little a little too high. Some of them yeah. definitely too high. Um, but whether or not something like that gets through is all in the, the political tea leaves. Mm -hmm. But I think that most of the, the macro events, most of the things that we're thinking about in terms of the economy should all be put in the context of that, that inflection that's going to come 
with the, the elections in November. Yeah. Well, um, we have an apartment group here that sells apartments, and we're starting to see uh, demand coming, a lot more demand than normal coming from places like New York and places where they're experiencing rent control. So what do you think about that and, and the impact of that and where it's going? Well, I think rent control, everybody knows that that's mm -hmm. going to be a problem when it comes down to delivering new supply. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, how bad that gets when we look at some of the most progressive areas in the country and what has been implemented. So if we look at California and Oregon, it's really kind of an anti-gouging measure at this stage. You know, you've got, it's, you know, CPI plus 700 basis points, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you, you have some room there. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how bad that is going to be. Um, and I don't think that is as big of an issue as what will likely be at some point, whether it's in this next administration or later, a supply side stimulus. That's my, my personal view. I think that uh, the, the fears of, of rent control really getting big sway are, are, are overstated. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I could, I could be wrong. And, and so if more rent control happens around the country, could that really have an adverse effect on affordability? Um, uh, you know, I think that we'd all hope that oh, we have rent control, there's more affordable housing, but could it, could it go against it? Well, of course, because you end up in a situation yeah. where new supply doesn't pencil if you're subjected yeah. to these rules. Yeah. Now, it can be very accretive to the people who benefit from that, mm -hmm. but if you don't benefit from that, you know, you're, you're somebody who's in, in a worse situation. And we, you can see this play out in other countries. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in Austria, for example, they have, they have rent control that mm -hmm. goes back uh, decades and decades, and people have to get an illegal mortgage for their key money <laughs> you know, to, to get locked into, into their apartment where you have people you know, on, on their third generation or so of, of, wow. of renting an apartment. So th I think the real sad part of that, too, is that now that allows people to discriminate by something other than the price mechanism. Mm -hmm. And in a society where we're always you know, worried about a, a fair society, we don't need people discriminating on the basis of something other than the price mechanism. Yeah. And when you're looking at demand for these communities around the country, um, what do you think about the demographics? I mean, we have, seems like we have a, a big uh, kind of aging population, uh, and are, are more of the aging population, are they more of your tenant profile now? How do you look at the demographics today for multifamily? I think the older millennial segment mm -hmm. uh, is underappreciated. Mm -hmm. You really have, and, and if you look at the, the home ownership rate, you can see this too, the under 35 home ownership rate has increased. And I think a lot of that actually has to do with these older millennials aging out of that bucket these millennials who have a high likelihood of being renters as a result of their experience during the recession, the recovery. So I think there's a segment there that's definitely going to be a renter a little bit longer. We know Gen Z is going to backfill. I think another thing that's interesting to be thinking about is the change uh, societally uh, between men and women, marriage rates, and birth rates. Mm -hmm. uh, women have gotten the majority of college degrees every year since 1990. Their, their labor force participation rate has been increasing the last few years, whereas men's has been a bit, a bit constant. Um, our birth rates are, are, are quite low, and so I think you, you have this situation now where there really isn't a demand for a larger product. You're going to have a lot of people who, who, who will live in a, an apartment lifestyle because if they're not having families, then they don't need more space. Yeah. If you're career-focused and you're focusing on, on, on that lifestyle, yeah. you're going to be seeking an experience that can give it to you in your housing. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I agree with that. You know, I remember back in the day where um, many years ago, and if somebody said they were renting an apartment, you kind of went, you felt sorry for them, right? You're like, oh, you must not be doing well. Now you hear somebody's renting an apartment, you're like, man, you lucky dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you don't, have to, you don't have to do anything at your house this weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just, you're not living at home, and you don't yeah. have to worry about yeah. you know, maintenance and this kind of thing. Yeah, and the yeah. apartments are, are, are certainly a lot nicer, a lot more amenities, and just being built better than, the, than they were. It's like, you know, it seems like the new apartments are condo quality back, yeah. that we used to experience back in the day. And now it's more than just the quality. Now yeah. it's coming down to the experience you're getting there, too. Right. Right, so you're going to have... You know, fitness programs, mm -hmm. you have maintenance guarantees, and these are mm -hmm. things that we offer to really differentiate ourselves. Yeah. So where are there some opportunities out there today? <laughs> That's the tough part when it comes to pricing. So, yeah. you know, we run our own rent forecast, yeah. right? So I forecast 41 markets around the U.S. that, w that we find interesting. That's about 500 or 600, 579 submarkets. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we run this through our market selection algorithms, we see uh, an interesting opportunity in some tier two markets, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the near west. So uh, Tucson's looking kind of attractive, Albuquerque, Boise. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are areas really where you know, you're know you starting to get aspects of, of in-migration and job growth according to, to our forecasts, mm -hmm. or, or, and net migration in particular. Boise, of course, has been very good with net migration. So that's an area that looks interesting to us. Um, we also continue to see 
not only core plus where we have been, but starting to do forward opportunities with developers. Uh, and that could be suburban and, and, and anywhere in the country where it, where it pencils, uh, but locking down those deals. And then I do think long term there could be, and it, when, I, when I look at some of the demographic trends, I think there is an implicit demand for physically differentiated product. And we've seen this with micro units and this kind of thing, but I do think we're going to see people start to get into townhome style development that's, that's purpose built for rent. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So when you're when you're asked by your board uh, to tell them about the cycle, you know, it's like we've had this great long cycle. Yeah. Are, are some of them asking you like, when's this going to end? What, what, what? Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's been five years now since yeah. the cycle was first long in the tooth. Remember that that phrase, yeah. producer? I can date yeah. that back to 2014. Yeah. Uh, what I what I look at is is the overall fundamentals. Mm -hmm. right? I mentioned this undersupply earlier, 1.3 million units. You know, Freddie Mac, a bit higher. I've seen estimates far north of that. So the question is, is, you know, that alone, the need to build more, as long as that activity could take place, could extend the cycle quite, quite long. Now, yeah, we have issues in the corporate bond market. We have, you know, there's always China. There's things we might worry about. But when we look at our space, the fundamentals are really interesting. And, and, and again, you know, if you've got occupancies near a 20-year high, according to RealPage, and you've got industry forecasts that consistently look at this new supply, and, they're, and they're, they forecast rising vacancies, and then you know the reality is not only do they not rise, they even fall, you know, or perhaps they only rise a little bit. Uh, we saw this with the supply wave that hit nationally in, in 2016 and 2017. Uh, vacancies, yeah, they peaked a little bit, but then they went back down, they hit new lows. Mm -hmm. I think the question is when we look at all the supply we're gonna see this year, which is estimated about 370,000 units nationally, according to RealPage, are we gonna see that again? And I think we will see Occupancies, yeah, they're going to go down a little bit, but I think they'll recover quite quickly due to this pent-up demand. Yeah. As long as we're not actively losing jobs, which might be part of the politics, right? If, if the election shakes things up, mm -hmm. that could be different. But if we're not actively losing jobs, I think we'll see this demand continue to flow. Yeah, it seems like all the everything's pointing the direction to the continue the demand. You know, the that uh, you know the the affordability of, of actually new homes too. I mean they're so expensive, right? Yeah, uh, it's, it's keeping people from and buying. So I, I got to ask you this as an economist that's in the apartment industry: um, What do you think about revenue management systems where you know you're, we're using uh, software and computers and uh, algorithms to to adjust the rents daily in these apartments? Do you do you guys use them, and what do you think about it? Uh, we do. Yeah. Uh, I think that they're critical. In yeah. fact, when we look on the investment side, we'll even Sometimes we'll find alpha in properties that are not on that so that, that we can begin to use it. Now, in many things that are using these types of models, there's always this, this bigger question about how patterns can become self-reinforcing. But that's not mm -hmm. something we need to get into. I think the key yeah. is, is it does allow uh, efficiencies to take place, certainly early on. And if you can identify investment opportunities that are not on a system and you're going to implement a system, that can definitely be valuable. Yeah. Well, it makes sense to me. I used to uh, own a property uh, management company. We had a lot of apartment communities. And one of the things I would see is that, you know, the resident, the, the managers start to get uh, relationships with the tenants. And, you know, they don't want to raise the rents on, on their great tenants they've had for a long time. And that makes sense. But when you have to look at it and say, well, the computer tells me I have to. And the computer tells me if you move, you're going to pay more. Yeah. Somewhere else, right? Yeah, yeah. Makes it a little easier. Yeah. And then so and then you're in the boardroom and you're like, you don't have to worry about that anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's a it's the evolution of the industry. Yeah. So what would you leave our audience with to, to think uh, about related to multifamily moving forward? Well that's a good question. I think there's so many things. Uh, <laughs> I've, the, the first thing that jumps out of my mind is I think people really need to to look at this supply situation. Everybody's gonna have their own interpretation of what's happened in housing over the last 10 years and, and really get to the root of why are there these affordability pressures today? Is it because we haven't been building enough or is it because we did things earlier that have made it such that it's difficult to build today? What really is the best answer? Should we be you know, doing supply side solutions? Should we be doing rent control? I, I wouldn't agree with that, but yeah. you know, I'd, I'd ask the audience to generally be thinking about that and, and kind of uh, empathize with 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 our fellow citizens as we think about as a society how we're yeah. going to approach issues in housing. Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways to do it. You know, you mentioned that the micro units, you know, we have people doing co-living where they're sharing mm -hmm. apartments, kind of like student housing. Um, you know, we have people renting manufactured housing, right? Yep. Uh, we have, you know, we have some municipalities, I, I hope, that are starting to uh, lower the, the cost of development, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because some of the municipalities, you can say that word, 
uh, you know, they can help really. Uh, let's cut down some of these fees, right? Let's make it easier to build these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of support behind that. Upzoning yeah. and, yeah. you know, there, there's, the, the support is there. It's just, it's starting to, to gain and there's different areas and, you know, mm -hmm. overriding the, the, the will of a local jurisdiction isn't, you know, the, yeah. you know it's kind of a ham-fisted solution. There has to be a dialogue and, and we'll get there. But I think the, the, the appropriate forms of thinking are in place. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, denser housing is a solution. Continue to move in that way. Society has to work out just the, you know, what the degree of, of government involvement is going to be or what the agencies are going to do as far as lending products and this kind of thing. But it's, it's on its way. Yeah. One more curious, uh, curiosity question for you. With so many community, communities you guys have, are you seeing a need for less parking uh, overall, or can you can, are you gonna, can you see that? I do have. I, I have not seen that. Okay. Uh, now the, there may be one of our communities where that has been the case. I have seen yeah. the opposite though, which was that we had a, a tennis court at one of our communities, and so we're always getting feedback from our residents to try to understand what they want, right? So we can implement something different to serve them better. Nice. And one of these was they had a tennis court, and they said they wanted more parking, so we did turn it into more parking. So it was yeah. sort of the, sort of the inverse of that. But yeah. and again, though, if you think about it. We're more suburban in orientation. We're right. you know adjacent to these you know urban core areas where yeah. I would imagine people are seeing far less of a need for yeah. parking. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Brad, great information. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, and if you like more information from uh, Cortland, uh, check them out. They have a lot of communities around the country. Well, stay with us. We'll have more on the U.S. apartment market. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Look, managers of commercial real estate firms are raving about this training for their agents. Check it out at CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Well, today we're talking about multifamily, and what we're going to talk about in this segment is, look, lifestyles and expectations of renters has really changed. The demographics have changed. What people expect have changed. Well, if you're an apartment owner or manager, how can you take advantage of these expectations and these changes. We're gonna find out right now. Please welcome my guest. It's Ben Johnson. He's founder and CEO of Spruce, and he's joining us via video. Ben, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Michael. Well, Ben, you know, as I mentioned in the opening, there's different expectations by all consumers today. Apartments are, are no different. What are you seeing as far as kind of the demographic changes you're seeing in, in residents of apartments around the country and, and kind of what they expect? Great question, Michael. I think you've seen several uh, macro trends in multifamily really over the last 10 years where you have, you know, renters that are, are, are no longer just filling a gap between graduating from college and owning a home. I mean, for the first time, you have people that uh, are like large populations of renters that are really going to be lifelong renters. This goes into the same theme as uh, you know, re-centralization in cities. And these renters expect different amenity sets out of their building. It's no longer just, uh, just four walls. They want a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I used to uh, own a pretty good-sized management company, and I remember one of the set of the apartments I had were these beautiful Neil Reed buildings, and they were just gorgeous. And every tenant in every apartment owned their own business, they were well-to-do, pretty wealthy people, and they chose to rent. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I agree, there's a lot of people now that are kind of choosing that lifestyle. So, so what is it that these residents are looking for? Yeah, it's, it is everything that they expect in a home and more. Uh, but when you, when you have you know, 300 units or sometimes more, sometimes less, all stacked on top of each other, you have this opportunity to deliver things in a different way. So people are expecting groceries in their fridge. They're expecting services to be integrated with the building, right? Because uh, 
a lot of times in these larger buildings, uh, you cannot even access the corridors without going through the building first. So they expect an integrated lifestyle. Uh, lifestyle. They expect to be able to use technology to uh, interact with the building, not just pay your rent and request maintenance requests, but to book amenities in the building, to request services, to uh, take care of your vehicle. Everything is expected to be integrated, just like other parts of our lives. This sounds uh, better than a fancy hotel. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's supposed to mirror a fancy hotel. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, and so what are some of the services that you're seeing that, that might surprise people uh, that residents uh, are, are looking for today? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think that we started with e-commerce, right? And it's funny how e-commerce created logistically great challenges for the multifamily industry. I mean, you started with properties 20 years ago, we're receiving, you know, 10 packages a day, and now some properties are up to 400 packages a day. And just like the logistical effort of managing that is crazy. And residents, you know, sometimes they're not really understanding. They just expect it to be uh, where it needs to be. So from, you know, the table stakes is you know, taking care of your, your garbage and your packages. But beyond that, um, I think people want to, they, they want to live in their homes in a different way. I mean, we, when we just started, we were doing housekeeping. Well, we haven't talked about spruce yet, but, uh, but the, the services they expect are not just your, your traditional, like, pet care, dry cleaning, housekeeping services. They want services that really fit into their lifestyle, their lifestyle and their budget. Um, stuff that like just really hits on what they need and not more than that. They don't like bundles. They don't like overpaying. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You know, when I think about, uh, I have a, a home in Atlanta and a home on Lake Lanier. And during the week, I'm in Atlanta and, and now I'm empty nester and I really don't want this big home anymore and all the houses on it. And I do want a lifestyle. I want to live in an environment where I have a lot of, of advantages uh, to, to create a nice lifestyle. And, you know, what you, know, you guys are helping owners of apartments, communities, provide these lifestyle uh, amenities for them. And what are some of the amenities that uh, maybe uh, some of these apartment owners might be surprised to hear that, that you guys are seeing that residents uh, are really enjoying? Yeah, well, you know, I am a resident. I live in a, a multifamily building here in Austin. And one thing that I personally like is that every Monday morning, I leave my three loads of laundry on the couch that I did on Sunday and, uh, and someone comes for $15 and just folds all my clothes. So simply taking care of the one, the one piece that I, uh, I really need done and not anything more than that. So that, uh, that is an example of something like residents are really interested in. On top of that, they want to be able to provide access for their guests. They want to be able to um, utilize the common areas in the space uh, in a way that really fits their needs. So, booking a conference room, booking a con like throwing a being able to throw a birthday party, and just taking care of that through technology. These are all examples of things that like residents really want out of their building. Yeah, when you're talking too about folding clothes and, and walking dogs, your, things like that. As an apartment owner and manager, your kind of first thought is, wow, that sounds like a, a lot of labor, uh, a lot of me having to hire more people and having more expense that I don't need. But you guys have come up with a way to kind of fix that, right? Well, the, the thing is, um, those services are already happening in your building, uh, except they're being hired by your residents. And so when a resident goes out and hires a dog walker, I guarantee you they're not doing a seven-year background check. <laughs> and they are not mandating that that dog walker has at least a million dollars in general liability insurance. Uh, and that their auto policy is up to date before they're driving around your parking garage. Right? So the residents are already hiring these services. Uh, they're just doing it inefficiently, and they're doing it in ways that create this shadow liability for the property um, that is this actually very material. And how does Spruce fix that? Well, we take this shadow economy of, call it, $300,000 to $500,000 a year of services that are already happening in your building, and we bring it into the fold, right? And we work with local companies to make sure that the people coming on site are branded 
operating under the Spruce brand. They're, they're not carrying their cleaning materials around in a trash bag uh, or dressed in a way that doesn't really fit with the brand image of your property. But they're also insured, bonded, licensed, and trained. They know where they're going. They're not burdening your staff. Uh, and that when something doesn't go right, you have uh, somebody that's accountable, uh, one, one throat to choke, right? one person to reach out to, to rectify the problem. Okay. And can the tenants call up these services uh, without even bothering uh, the manager's time? Yeah. So with Spruce, uh, how that works is when, when, you, when we operate with a building, when a building becomes powered by Spruce, um, residents can use the, the mobile app to book housekeeping, pet care, dry cleaning, wash and fold, and then a whole handful of chores, right? So that's the $15 will fold your clothes, $12 will change your bed sheets, 20 bucks will clean just your bathroom. Um, so that's what we do. And for the resident, they just book in the app and that's it. So we work with the property to take care of the logistics. And we make sure that the provider knows where they're going, that they're using our technology to run their business. So in real time, we can tell the resident and the property manager and the on-site staff exactly who's coming, where they're, where they're going, where they are right now, what jobs they finished, what jobs have yet to be done. We can give real-time updates there. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and how does the cost impact it there for, for the residents? Uh, you know, what might they normally pay for one of those services a la carte, if you will, uh, without you guys being involved? And is it, is it a little more money to have the kind of the safety of, of you guys being involved and the managers kind of knowing who these people are? Yeah, so you would expect that if you're going to deliver a service level that's higher, right, if you're putting burdens of background checks and insurance on a provider, that they're going to be more expensive and because those are increased costs. But the opportunity that you have in a building uh, when you have 300 people kind of all living on top of each other is you have this density effect. So a housekeeper that has to drive between jobs can do about three cleanings in a day. But if you can keep that same cleaner in one building, they can do six jobs in a day. So you just took a worker and you doubled their efficiency, right? Or you cut their labor cost in half. And that 50% cost savings, part of it goes through to the resident. So the resident's actually getting safer, higher quality, professional cleaning at a price that's below market. And mark, you know, prices for cleaning can vary uh, from city to city, but typically you're looking, you know, the market rate for a professional cleaning is between 80 and $120, right? And so we try and be about 10% below market in all of our cities. That sounds great. Now, how does that impact uh, the residents at renewal time? Because I think if, if, you're, if a building has this kind of service, I think I might get a little spoiled. Yeah. Well, the way we operate, we send the same person back time after time to do your services. And so from the resident's perspective, they are not as attached to Spruce as they are Shelly, who's actually the one walking their dog day in and day out. And that becomes an emotional attachment. And so what the property manager might not understand is, okay, you have this feature set of these services, you compare it to this feature set, you know, it might be the same thing, but that's not what the resident sees at all. And so then when it comes time for move out, all of a sudden, and unless you're moving for like financial or life change reasons, uh, then it's, it becomes now a, an emotional decision to move. And I just say most people are actually really bad at making emotional trade-offs, right? If you're moving down the road for $5,000 in rent concessions, that's kind of an easy decision to make. You weigh the challenges of moving with the costs associated with it. But now when you're trying to decide, okay, how much is my dog going to be upset at me because Shelly can't come anymore and he has to have a new dog walker, like, that's a really hard trade-off to make. And I think empirically, we're able to show that residents are staying longer. They're renewing far more frequently in our buildings because of that emotional attachment. And how, how does it increase renewals? Have you done any studies to kind of see, you know, what the increase in renewals is after the service is implemented? Yeah, we, we have. So with Spruce specifically, uh, in our services, so we say the average renewal rate is around 53% uh, in a building. But if somebody uses Spruce two or more times, they're renewing their lease 82% of the time. 
And if they use Spruce 20 times or more, they're renewing their lease 90% of the time. Wow. And so that takes the average renewal rate from 53% to above 62%, which is a material impact on a building. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, you know, you don't have that turnkey cost and re-renting cost. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's just less wear and tear on the building. Uh, really, it can really impact mm -hmm. your top and your bottom line numbers uh, when it comes to managing apartments. Well, I tell you, Ben, that, that's awesome. And, can, uh, it, it, and if people want to know more about this, check out their website. It's GetSpruce.com, GetSpruce.com. Ben, what would you leave our audience with uh, related to kind of the lifestyles of of the, not the rich and famous, but the renters. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what people expect out of their buildings. And uh, it's about creating an emotional attachment. It's about making sure that your building is safe and secure. And this shadow economy exists and it's growing already. So bring it into the fold, right? I think maybe sometimes uh, the industry, the, the multifamily industry, thinks about trying to take a cut of every transaction that happens in the building. And sometimes it's more about just opening up your platform so that you get more of the economy into, like, out of the shadows and into the fold. And then eventually you can figure out how to take economics from that. And I think, you know, that's, that's the story here is, like, let's bring the shadow economy into the fold, reduce these real liabilities, and create a better lifestyle for our residents. Uh, absolutely. If you can re reduce turnover like that, that's amazing for the apartment industry. Uh, ben, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, love what you do. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on Around the Country. If you're watching or listening, thank you. Thanks for sharing the show. Hey, please provide your comments. And we appreciate you sharing the show with your connections. Uh, join us next week. Until then, be sure you always lead, learn, and laugh. And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Appreciate the show? Consider referring business or doing business with our sponsors. Bull Realty is a commercial real estate sales, leasing, and advisory firm doing business throughout the Southeast, headquartered in Atlanta. Visit bullrealty.com for more information. Commercial Agent Success Strategies provides video training for commercial agents. This training gets five-star reviews from even the most experienced brokers. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. You're invited to connect with us on your favorite social media. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't miss a show of special interest to you. Be sure and subscribe to the show on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And at the show website, CREshow.com, you can subscribe for a weekly email announcing the show topic and guest. While you're there, you also found more videos and podcasts. Thank you for watching or listening to America's Commercial Real Estate Show.